Welcome to Northern Goal, the football podcast from Evening Express and Pressing Journal. I'm Ryan Crail, and joining me today is one of our regular contributors, Paul Third. But we're not alone. We've been joined today by someone who at the moment might be Britain's busiest man in the build-up to the Euros. He managed Scotland between 1993 and 2001 and was a coach with the national team long before that. Um, he also coached one of our local teams, who's manager of Aberdeen. But if you haven't guessed it by now, and I'm sure you have, it's Craig Brown. How are you, Craig? I'm well, thank you. I wasn't recently, but uh, I've recovered fully. And the, the surgeon tells me my recovery is on schedule, so very happy to be with you. Yeah, glad to hear that. Um, was I right in saying that you're you're in demand at the moment? Your phone must be ringing off the hook. Yes, I think once the tournament starts, that will I think uh, that will abate a bit because uh, at the moment everyone's predicting what's going to happen and what team will play and how we'll get on and what have you. But once it starts, I'm sure I'll be like the rest of us. I'll just be a, an ordinary fan, Tartan Army member supporting Scotland and hoping for the very best. And I'm quite confident about a very good tournament for Scotland. Paul, on you go. I was going to say, Craig, this must feel like a, a double-edged sword for you in some ways. I mean, when you when you took the team to the Stade Joffrey Guichard for that final game against Morocco at France in 98, I mean, what would you have said at that point if someone had said, well, it's going to be 23 years before we're back to this sort of stage again? Well, I would think they were out of their mind. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have believed them because, you know, in the 12 years prior to that, I was at five major tournaments with Scotland. And, you know, it just became almost automatic that you qualified and it was great humiliation if you didn't. But now, 23 years later, we've managed to qualify. It's great. But in the the intervening period, we've been desperately unlucky. There's no doubt about it because I I look at the manager we've had. We've had some excellent uh, football managers and they've been desperately unlucky. I could go through uh, the occasions when I think Walter Smith, uh, Gordon Strachan, you know, particularly uh, Alec McLeish, all very, very unfortunate not to qualify. But we've made it now, and Steve Clark's got us on the road, and I'm very, very optimistic. I was saying, Craig, before we came on, obviously, that, that I was pretty young. I was only six uh, when France 98 was on the go. I remember the first game against Brazil, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. But last night, I got a brilliant refresher documentary made about yourself by the BBC. Did you? I heard you speaking on another podcast about the documentary, saying that you'd you'd obviously filmed your segments, but you hadn't seen it in full. Did you watch it last night? Yes, I watched it last night. That was my first uh, sighting of it. And, you know, it was made some months ago and I had not long come out of hospital. I was looking at myself. <laughs> Quite honestly, I thought I looked terrible. Uh, I don't know how I spoke. I didn't speak as uh, confidently as normal, uh, I think, anyway. But I've had very good feedback from it. You know, people are saying that was a very good day. Uh, documentary but maybe I'm too vain or, or selfish to think how I looked but it was a very good program there's no doubt about that and uh, you know I think it's awakened people's interest to a big major tournament so let's hope we have a similar success in this one. Everyone I knew was watching it anyway um, I think there were a lot of scenes in it that took place in the, in the dressing room, sort of footage behind the scenes that maybe people wouldn't have seen before. So, having seen those clips from France 98, and obviously there was Euro 96 before it, but you're one of the few people that probably knows right now how Steve Clark's feeling 
in the build up to the the big kickoff on Monday. What will be what will he be thinking about this week? Shape tactics? Will he just be keeping his fingers crossed that everything's fine? Yes, I think he will. I think he'll be hoping to maintain the excellence of uh, the rest of his reign. I mean, he's got a wonderful record as manager of uh, Scotland. I think he's lost only two of the last 16 games. Now, that's a sensational record at any level, never mind international level. So I'm quite sure he'll be, I think, confidently uh, looking forward to the tournament and with good optimism and justifiable optimism because he's done a wonderful job with that team. And we now have a team where we've got star players and players who are playing at top level in the in the English league, whereas as the previous managers I referred to didn't have that luxury. They were having to go to the championship and even sometimes in League One to get players for Scotland. And our top two teams here regularly have been the Celtic and Rangers. They haven't been excelling in Europe the way they did when I had the job. You know, Celtic and Rangers were in European finals when I was privileged enough to be able to pick their players. And I could go down to England and get three from the champion team of England. I mean, not just any premiership team, the champion team, Blackburn Rovers. We had Henry, we had uh, McKinley and we had Gallagher. And they had won the English championship. Then we could go to over to Liverpool and pick up uh, Gary McAllister, who won three trophies in one season there. So, And Paul Lambert had a European winner's medal, the same as Andy Robertson has now. So, you know, I, I feel that previous managers or the managers between Steve and myself have not had the fortune, the good fortune to have players at the top level playing in England and sometimes abroad. So, you know, I think now things have changed and when I look at the quality in Stevie's squad, I think we've got a great chance. I, I know from experience, Craig, um, in chats we've had, you used all sorts of a wee tricks to try and keep the mood light within the camp in the build-up to international matches. I think you've told me before about selecting teams for bounce games in training, depending on the, the makeup of your squad. You've had an old firm team, an Anglo team, and of course a legendary ugly team that you've told me uh, about <laughs> before. I mean, that, that one must have gone down no, really well. Uh, no, uh, uh, the <laughs> Well, I would put it, Paul, a good-looking team and others. <laughs> I wouldn't call them ugly, although, uh, uh, although a player's wife accosted me when I got back from Italy. I was the assistant manager then, and I'd done this uh, exercise in Italy, and she said to me, why was my husband in the ugly team? <laughs> and I'd ask her what her name was, and I'll not tell you his name, but I said, he's in the ugly team because he's got dyed hair and false teeth, that's why. <laughs> she was quite indignant. So it tells me something. It tells me, or it told me rather, that they phone home and tell their wife, you know, he put me in the ugly team. You know, I would also have a team, those who have lost their driving licence and those who have still got it, you know. Uh, the, the tall and the short and I looked for all the various possible criteria for team selection uh, just to give a bit of fun to the proceedings so you know that was one of the ways to lighten the mood There was of course for the listeners uh, Scotland International on last night's programme who had died here and was missing a few teeth maybe it was him, who knows um... Well he was a captain <laughs> of one of the teams <laughs> oh, Not in <laughs> Steve, uh, Steve's had to deal with something that no other manager who's taken the country to a tournament has to or has had to um, because of the coronavirus pandemic and we've seen with John Fleck's positive tests that things can happen you know things can happen that throw your plans into disarray very quickly it probably wasn't the case with John Fleck but with other players if that were to happen 
you'd imagine Steve's got his, you know, already knows the the lineup for that first game potentially. Um, it must it must be tough hanging that potential grenade or having that potential grenade hanging over your head all the time at the moment. Yeah, that's that's an issue that uh, we weren't uh, concerned with. You know, obviously injuries uh, prevented our progress, I think, and and uh, but Steve's had to deal with the pandemic, and uh, that's quite an issue. And I think we've seen that with uh, John Fleck uh, having to self-isolate, and that included another six players. So the strength of the squad was the squad was confirmed because without these six players, we played exceptionally well against the Netherlands, and and they're no pushover. I can assure you, you're playing Holland. So you know, good credit to Steve uh, for having a squad which can cope with such an uh, an unfortunate uh, incident and there's still the possibility of things like that happening Ho- hopefully not to Scotland but uh, it's not out with the bounds of possibility but I think we've got provision in the group to cater for that kind of misfortune It's it's funny Craig, I think as a as a fan and it's a one time you can probably look when you're covering Scotland as part fan and part reporter I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie I can be biased when I'm doing I'm covering Scotland but it feels as a fan this is the worst week of the year because you just want to get going we've all waited so long and the tournament's it's here now it's just a matter of days away for you guys were you aware of that within the camp that there's that weight of expectation everyone you know the whole country is looking to you at this very moment in time that's right yes and I used to use that I used to say look uh, we can make a nation proud here and uh, you owe it to the Tartan army whether they're still in their house watching on television or whether they've made the trip to the match, you owe it to give 150%, if that's possible, effort and have no regrets. And these were my two words when they, when they left the dressing room. I always said no regrets. And that meant everyone giving every ounce of energy and concentration to the job. Uh, you know, we are accountable to the, the country when you've got a team and uh, you've been away and they're in prison. It's, you know, they don't have the same freedom as you normally have when you're away in a training camp with the prison. It's an opulent prison, certainly. <laughs> you know, you get the best of everything uh, in terms of facilities. And the SFA, to great credit to the SFA here, they're very good at looking after their teams. You could see that, the, the quality of the hotel. I, I don't know how many hotels I visited in France before we settled in one. And we took over the whole hotel. And it, 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 there was one deficiency, and that was uh, in the gym. They hadn't enough uh, apparatus in the gym. And we managed to get Techno Gym to kit us out and to equip the gym because every player at that level has a personal uh, fitness program and they go to the gym very conscientiously. And you just need to look at John Collins' stomach and <laughs> he was happy to display, uh, to realise that they're very proud of their fitness and uh, so that was the only deficiency in the hotel we had, for example, in France. So the, it was quickly rectified because the hotel helped us to get uh, a sponsored uh, gym, gymnastic case set up. And that made the players feel comfortable because you've got every other facility. So it's an opulent prison you're in, but you haven't got the same freedom that you would have uh, normally, you know, if you were on holiday, for example. The other thing, too, is in, in my time, we didn't quite have the same social media and uh, television was there, but it wasn't as, how shall we say, comprehensive as it is now. 
So, you know, there was a bit of more uh, importance attached to entertaining the players yourself. When we had quizzes, we had visits, uh, we had wee competitions. We, we did a lot of things to try to keep uh, everybody happy and not get too bogged down in uh, the football. Now, when the game started, it was easy. We watched other games, other countries playing. In fact, on some occasions, we actually went to a game if it was within decent range, we would go and watch the, the fixture. So, I mean, I think Steve, he's gone down to England and I don't think it'll be easy to watch from where they are. Is it Darlington or Middlesbrough? They're going to a very nice hotel there. But they'll not be able to go and, and physically watch other matches. But they've got two at home in Scotland, which is great, and one at Wembley, which is a nice, easy away fixture. <laughs> You talked a little bit there, Craig, about the, the the last two words you'd say before your team left the dressing room. And on on the documentary last night, you it was it was made quite clear that you were quite a calm calm force in the in the dressing rooms, whereas some players might you know right before kickoff start bawling and shouting and sort of try to g up their teammates. Why why did you take that approach that you did the sort of the calm, collected, focused approach as opposed to that sort of fire and brimstone sort of way yeah. of operating? Well, I actually don't think that works. I don't think this uh, brave heart uh, putting on the war paint and shouting and roaring helps. Now, some players like it individually. And they, they actually, <laughs> you know, I think Colin Collarwood was, was shown and he, he's one who's determined. He was punching his chest and come on, come on. He's talking to himself really, not to the others. And he's just getting psyched up. But I must admit, I prefer in, in the whole uh, steely determination, you know, a conscientious approach to it where your mind's on what you're going to do and you're not going to be short of anything when you go into that pitch. But remember, there's a long time, particularly at an international match, before the game starts when you leave the dressing room. And, uh, you know, you're out there and you, uh, Steve will know that, but he'll find it even more in a championship like this where they have all we, we played the opening game in Paris and that meant there was a there was an opening ceremony on the pitch we couldn't get a proper warm up outside so we had to warm up inside but even when it's not the opening fixture there are there's so much pageantry before the game you're walking out you're shaking hands you're hearing anthems and there's quite a, a, a lull so you can be psyched up when you leave the dressing room but you have another maybe could be five, ten minutes before the kickoff, and in that period you could lose that uh, great determination. So if you've got a, a calm approach and you're really conscientiously thinking of what you're going to do and what the opponents might do, I think that's uh, more profitable. I was going to ask. I mean, it's been it's it's been twenty three years since we were at a major finals, but the mission's never changed in the eyes of the Tartan army. It's the Holy Grail is still, can we get out of a group, isn't it? Yeah, can we get out? I, I mean, I've got to go back. When I hear this, can we get out of the group? Now, there are 24 teams in this competition and 16 get out of the group, right? So if you're first or second, you're out. If you're the top four thirds, you're out. Now, that's that's... I don't like to be uh, in any way disrespectful, but that's you only into the last 16. Now, if we look back, Andy Roxburgh was in the last eight. And and when I went with Andy as his assistant to Sweden, the only teams qualified. So Scotland were in the quarterfinal through the qualification process. So, you know, and, and, and people are getting excited, and rightly so, and no, no disrespect to them, but 
they're getting excited about managing to get out of this group. Now, that out of the group takes you to the last 16. <laughs> now, and, and I've got to say, you know, even in my time, you had to qualify to get into the last 16 in Euro 96. So I think, you know, there is, I think, great determination to get. And I, I'm not thinking of Scotland in this context of getting to the last 16 or the last eight. I'm thinking of getting to the last four or the last two. And, and I genuinely and sincerely believe that. And I think there's a chance of it. The way the team's playing and the way they're managed, I think everything uh, in the Gardner's Rosie, everything's very positive towards success in this tournament. But, you know, I, I, I see it's a wee bit mistaken notion to think, well, if we get to how to input to the, to the playoff match stage for the first time, well, Andy was there, <laughs> I think, brilliantly getting Scotland into the last eight. Uh, in fact, we officially finished fifth in that tournament. So I think that was a great credit to you. And it's, it's been overlooked, I think, but uh, quite rightly, we want to not look at the past and we want to look forward. And I'm looking forward when I genuinely and sincerely believe the last eight is a clear possibility. Okay, we'll, we'll skip ahead then in terms of our uh, the, the questions we've got planned, just to uh, one that's a bit further down to touch on what you said there. So I understand from reading a piece Paul's done with you that despite the fact that you're no longer the Scotland manager, you've still been keeping a pretty close eye on the likes of the Czech Republic and England and you sort of know their, you know where their strengths and weaknesses are. Can you maybe give us a bit of an insight into that? Well, I think so. Well, it's just it's just a hobby of mine. If, you, if your hobby is your work, it's easy because, you know, at one time I knew every international team in Europe, you know, and certainly every team we played because I would study them and I would look at tapes and watch them. I haven't been looking currently at tapes or anything, but I'm watching reports and seeing highlights, you know, the Czech Republic, and, and I used to know a lot about the countries in the past, but if if you want me to talk about the Czech Republic, I can do so, <laughs> but uh, I tend to go on too much anyway, and I can bore you a wee bit, but you know, I would think that uh, you know we look at the two players that uh, that Davy Moyes has at, at West uh, at West Ham, and Davy speaks very highly of them. And if he speaks highly of the, his players, that tells you something. They must be really, really outstanding players. Kufal, the right back, and Susek in midfield, and these are both players in their prime, and they're worth a fortune. Uh, you know, in the transfer market. And you know, and I, I love David Moyes. And when when David says, "I've got two wonderful players who have put his team right into the top echelon of the Premiership in England," you're saying to yourself, "Well, that's two that you know are going to be very good." Uh, maybe Carlos plays at Bristol City. I don't think he played in the last friendly when they were well beaten in the last friendly. Uh, the Czech Republic uh, they lost four nothing. Uh, so there's a there's an encouragement there, I think. Although they've got good players, they're capable of losing. And uh, but they're they're fortieth, I think, in the in the FIFA ranking, which you've got to respect. In terms of in terms of England, obviously they've got Harry Kane, who's their sort of their one man team. You know, if, if you had to pick a player that could possibly win a game in his own, it's him. But they've also got strength all over the pitch. In many ways, thinking about that, it reminds me of the the famous. You working out how to deal with Ronaldo's story? Could you maybe could you maybe tell us that story about Ronaldo, just in case some yeah, of the well, listeners haven't heard it before? 
Well, I worried about Ronaldo, and uh, I don't think it, it was a documentary there. And I think I, I said it in one of the many interviews I gave before the uh, the documentary that you know to handle Ronaldo it worried me because I thought this guy's absolutely outstanding. So I phoned Bobby Robson, Sir Bobby Robson, whom I knew reasonably well because we were at various courses in Europe together, and uh, I met him at international matches and. I took the liberty of phoning him and I said to him, Sir Bobby, don't call me sir, just call me Bobby. You know, that lovely man. I said, you've had Ronaldo. He said, he's the best striker I have dealt with in my whole career by a mile. And I've had a lot. I've had Ronaldo, uh, Rom, uh, Rom, uh, <laughs> Romario, I'm, I'm getting tongue-tied here. I've, I've had Romario, I've had Careca, I've had Gary Lineker. I've had all these guys. But he says, Ronaldo is by far... Uh, the best I've had. He says, you can't stop him. I said, do we double up on him? Do we have a man marker? He says, no, he'll, run, he'll roll round the marker, no problem. And if there's a man behind, he'll beat him as well. I said, well, what's, what's, how do you stop him? And this was his answer, you don't. I said, oh, come on. And he said, I'll tell you what to do. And they said, I think it's the only, uh, the only solution is don't let him get the ball. Stop the supply to him. So that was good advice. So I watched nine games of Brazil, eight, uh, a big one, seven on tape, and two I went to uh, to see them live before we played them. And I watched them, and we analysed who gave him the ball, and it came became quite apparent that most of his passes came from the right-back, Cafu. So rather than marking um, uh, Ronaldo, we marked Cafu, and I think very effectively, you know, a conscientious guy like Christian Daly can do as you ask him. And, uh, and I said to him, if he if, if he crosses a halfway line in possession of the ball and passes it to uh, Ronaldo, you'll be getting substituted, you know. So I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Christian. But anyway, we, man, we managed effectively to cut off the supply to Ronaldo. And they say that it's one of the quietest games he's ever had against Scotland. Now, that was not because of his inability. It was because of the fact that he didn't get possession of the ball. He hadn't the ball to to operate with. So, you know, it was a wee bit easier for Colin Henry uh, playing against him when he wasn't in possession of the football. So, uh, I mean, that's an oversimplification. But, uh, you know, you try to get every possible advantage. And I had a habit of saying, if you're fighting the Indians, you kill the chief. Who's the chief of the opposition here? And we would look at the opposing team. You know, you'd look at Finland and you say, Yari Lippmanen plays for Liverpool. He's the man. We, we man mark him. You know, you'd look at uh, Latvia, one of the smaller, and you would say, who's the star man? Pahars, he plays for Southampton. Good player in England. If we mark Pahars and get him eliminated, the problem with, <laughs> with playing Brazil or one of the big countries is that they've got 10 outfield star players and you can't mark 10 of them man for man. So you've got to have another uh, strategy. But by and large, I think a smaller nation in particular, and even some of the bigger ones, when we played France in a friendly way, man marked Zidane, and that kind of nullified them a bit. Uh, although I've got to admit, they still managed to beat us. That was the friendly before we went to the World Cup. But, you know, the, the Ronaldo story is true and uh, I think if you look at that match we played against Brazil, Ronaldo was one of the less noticeable Brazilian players So the natural next question then is 
do you think with the likes of Croatia, who've obviously got a standout individual superstar in Luka Modric, who's yes. won the Ballon d'Or, plays for Real Madrid? Yes. Is that the approach you think Steve will be taking to find a way to maybe it may seem obvious, but find a way to nullify him in particular? Yes, I, I, I certainly. If I if I were if I had my team, not not his team, if I had my team, I would say to Paul Lambert, Paul, your man is. Modric and Paul Lambert's job when they won the European Championship playing for Borussia Dortmund his felt was his manager the Austrian and his felt Paul told me my job was eliminate the star player in the opposition and sometimes I would go in at half time I've not had a touch at the ball and the manager would say brilliant Paul brilliant and, and Paul was the We'd look up and nod his head because he says, we haven't seen, whoever it was, Paul was delegated to Mark, we haven't seen their best player. And you've you've made it, you know, uh, 10 against 10 or 9 against 9 outfield players. Now, I, I would, if I had the, the team and I was playing against uh, Modric and I had Paul Lambert, he's tailor-made to Mark Modric. You know, when we played the, the Netherlands, the last twice we played them, and, and I had the, the team, I, I put them on Bergkamp. And in, in, in neither game did uh, Holland score against us. And one of the main reasons was Bergkamp was eliminated. And uh, Lambert was brilliant at that. And, and it's not a showy job. It's, a, it's a, an unattractive job having to uh, eliminate an opponent. And he did it. Lambert did it without tackle. It wasn't a hard tackle. It was reading the game. And and they, they would look up to their player, their key player like Modric, and they'd see he was marked and they wouldn't give him the ball. Or if he did, they did give him the ball, Paul would nick in and get it in front of him. Or or he would always be goal side of him. He would never give Modric a chance or a player like Modric a chance. So uh, I'm not sure... I don't know the players well enough in the Scottish setup just now, you know. But I think, you know, if he delegated that kind of job to John McGinn, for example, I think he would be pretty capable of doing it. Uh, maybe Big McTominay, but McTominay might not be as mobile as, as McGinn to to do the marking job. But that's that's my philosophy. But it's an uh, it's an oversimplification. But kill the chief if you're fighting the Indians. It's interesting. One of my takeaways from watching the documentary, which was very good, um, was that every, everyone, yourself included, and, and your former players, all seem to agree that Scotland achieved success despite not having superstar individuals like the ones we're talking about just now in, in Modric. But all these years later, it does seem that, that, that while that hasn't changed, there are guys that I, I know that you're, you're very... Um, positive about it within the Scotland squad I mean who, who are the key guys within Steve's group that you think we should be looking out for in the weeks ahead well obviously the, the, the glamour boy is Robertson and he's without doubt uh, he's as world class and I think Tierney is like that as well so I mean we know that they'll do very very well what we want is a, a striker to emerge at that level now, I think Steve's very pleased with Dykes and uh, the new boy Adams. I think he's pleased with these guys. Uh, I don't know them well enough. You know, I've, I've seen Dykes more playing in Scotland, but I haven't seen the, the, other, the other boy Adams, the Southampton player. But I think we need 
to be sure that we'll get goals from somewhere. Now, I'm certain that, you know, playing off the front, uh, Ryan Christie would get goals. And, but the big bonus for Scotland is the potential goals from midfield. Now, John McGinn has got 32 caps and he scored 10 goals from midfield. Now, that's, that that record is comparable with Kenny Dalglish's ratio because Kenny had 102 caps and scored 30 goals. Now, if you look at John McGinn, and I'm not saying he's a Kenny Dalglish, far from it, but he, but he's a very, very good player and a good goal scorer. He's, he's uh, got 10 goals in, in 30 games. Now, Kenny had 30 goals in 100 games. So, in actual fact, John McGinn's uh, record in terms of the ratio of goals per games is better. <laughs> and he's a midfield player. And, and he, he can also play as a holding midfield player, uh, McGinn. So, I mean, I think the other one I'm very, very keen on is McGregor in midfield. I think he's an outstanding uh, exponent uh, as well. Uh, I've never seen McGregor have a bad game and I've seen every time Aberdeen have played Celtic in recent years, McGregor has been outstanding. And that's me seeing him in the flesh. And then I look at him on the television. You know, I go to the Aberdeen games, so I'm not seeing Celtic apart from when they play Aberdeen. But I watch them playing matches on TV and in Europe. And McGregor, to me, is a wonderful player. So we've got a terrific midfield, I think. McGinn, McGregor and McTominay. And, and then you've got Armstrong who can slot in there. You've got... Uh, who else? Christie could play in midfield as well. So, I mean, we're really very well equipped. And then we've got these the strikers that we were talking about, the two big lads. Uh, I think Ryan Fraser could play off the front with one of them. So I would be very tempted to put one of them up there, Dykes or Adams, and put Ryan Fraser up with them. And we, we Fraser, will create openings, as you've seen in the international for Dykes. So, you know, I'm quite excited about the Scottish team, as you'll gather. Uh, and, and every department, they're well served, from goalkeeper right through. And my just one uh, worry is maybe scoring the goals. We need to, we haven't, you know, Griffiths fit might have been a guy who guarantee international goals. But the guys, they haven't guaranteed international goals, two big lads but hopefully they'll do it during this tournament. I suspect Paul was going to ask this same question. And um, I, I heard you on another podcast say you're not going to pick Steve Clark's team for him, and rightly so. But Billy Gilmore is somebody that there's been a lot of talk about um, from fans and the media. With with young guys like that, what do you think is the, the right time to put them in you know, this is obviously a massive game, the Czech Republic game on Monday, but you've got Billy Gilmore and Nathan Patterson waiting in the wings. Like, yeah, well, how, how, how does a manager know when's right? Well, I think you, you you intuitively know how the game's going and whether it's right to put them on or whether you want to start with them. Now, I think I've used this elsewhere when I've made this analogy, that Billy Gilmore is 19. Am I right in saying his age is 19? We played England in a in a playoff match at Wembley, and the best player on the pitch was a Scot who was twenty. Now England had in midfield, if I recall correctly, Beckham, Scholes, Ince, guys like that, and Barry Ferguson 
stood out a mile uh, in midfield. So it's the age shouldn't be against uh, Billy Gilmer. Uh, what I would put against him, actually, and it's maybe a bit harsh, is, is uh, his experience at that level. Now, having said that, before the lockdown, I watched him play on television in two games against both Liverpool teams, Everton and Liverpool, and he was the man of the match. And it wasn't a sympathy vote he got. He deserved it. The man of the match for Chelsea against the two Liverpool teams. Now, uh, that was, well, before the lockdown. It's over a year ago. And, uh, you know, he's been in and out because I think, obviously, Frank Lampard liked him and then the new manager came in and left him out for a while. But he's been forced to put him back in because he's a brilliant talent, my young lad. Uh, so... I wouldn't hesitate to, to play him, but funnily enough, if I was picking the team, I would go initially for the experienced players and have them ready if required. He never gives the ball away. He's got terrific vision. <laughs> you know, you're saying to me, why should he not start then? Well, the only reason I would not start him, and, and I started Barry Davis at the same age, but we hadn't quite the same competition then. Barry could get in uh, on merit, and he was playing more regularly for uh, Rangers than uh, Gilmer has played for Chelsea. Gilmer's only really emerged in the Chelsea team recently. So uh, Barry was much more experienced, although just slightly older. Uh, not much older, but they had much more top-level experience than, uh, than Gilmer. But you're asking the impossible here. What is the right team? And the right team's the one that wins the game. <laughs> and whether... Uh, you start with your selections right or wrong will be determined by the result we're focusing a lot on age experience and what have you I know from chats we've had in the past Craig that you have your own theory in terms of when people ask you who's the favourites who do you think is going to win the tournament you, you often say well look at who's the oldest or, or the most experienced you still well, think that could ring true Yes, it could ring true. I think. I mean, I, I think successful international teams are experienced teams, and they, you know, when when I, at last, well, not I lasted the team in this tournament. It was in Euro '96, and there's the quiz question: for Who won that the tournament? And and I'll give you the answer, and and I'll tell you one of the one of the reasons they were successful was they were experienced, and the oldest team won it then. Now, I haven't looked at this the tournament since, but I always feel that successful international teams are older teams, experienced teams. And Germany was the oldest team in the tournament. Bertie Volz was the manager, and they won Euro 96. And when you look at success in World Cups, you look and you see that it's experienced teams, the older teams, the, the, the FIFA give a, an annual, you know, give a report, a magazine, a report on all the statistics from the competition. One of the statistics is the average age of your team, the starting team and also the, uh, the, 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 the winning team, you know, and they give, they give you that, FIFA give you all that, and I regularly see that older players are successful players. Now, and I'm ex I'm expecting that uh, it'll be the same again. And we've got, I think, a perfectly balanced age in our team. I don't know what the average age will be, but it's a wee bit younger than usual. You know, it's I would think it's mid to late twenties. 
the oldest player I think is Gallagher in the group. He's thirty, and the youngest player will be—I don't know whether it's Patterson or, or Gilmer—but they're all in that band between twenty and thirty, and that's well. The middle of that's ideal age: twenty-six, seven, eight. These are successful international players. No, I'm just going to say I was going to help you out because I know I know you like a good start, Craig. Um, I, as I of like the first of June, when the the squads were announced, um, Sweden have the oldest squad at just over 29, which puts I think, I think they're a week older than Belgium, who are the strong favourites, I guess, in, in the eyes of of many. They would Bel- uh, Belgium would be my favourites. The youngest is going to be Turkey, at under 25. Turkey at what? Under 25. What what's Scotland's average age then? I think we're over 25, but what we do, what we are, we have the fewest international caps of any of the nations competing. All right. I think it works out an average of 17.2 across the squad. I'm impressed. I'm really impressed, Paul. We're the least experienced. That's <laughs> what we are. Belgium are the most, an average of 50.2. See, I used to know I used to know all these stats because when I was in the job, I felt it was my job to know. And I, I, tell you, I could tell you the population of every country we played, that kind of thing, and the many teams they had and, and things like that. But, but these are, I think these are very significant statistics you're giving us. And uh, that's given me good ammunition, you know, for other, <laughs> for other uh, <laughs> interviews I'm doing. No, seriously. But, uh, you know, the number of caps and the age, and they don't always coincide. So that's brilliant. I think we're we're well-equipped in every respect for this tournament. There's a good age and there's a good bit of youth and there's plenty of experience as well. I think it's great that you can take 26 players now. And that's very important. And I always go back to... Uh, the same old story that I was at three World Cups with Scotland and I was in Mexico with Alec Ferguson, the manager. I was in Italy with Andy Roxford and I had the team myself in France. And on every occasion, I would say our best player called off through injury. And it would have made a huge difference to the eventual success in the tournament. The one that called off was an unfit for Mexico, Kenny Dalglish, now, you're not going to tell me that if we had to play uh, Uruguay again in that last game with Kenny in the team, we wouldn't have managed better than a nothing-each draw. We'd have, we certainly would have beaten uh, 10 men Uruguay with Kenny in the team. <laughs> then we go to Italy, and the two forward players who were starring in Scotland at the time, both of them were injured. Davy Cooper, who was on fire, and we, John Robertson, at Hearts. And then I've got the team when we go to France for the World Cup and arguably our best player, Gary McAllister's injured and he can't play. So, I mean, it's a heartbreak when you've got a key player and he can't uh, play in the tournament. Now, I don't think there's anyone really, there's Ryan Jack uh, in that category and Kenny McLean, but they were not quite, no disrespect to these two, they're not quite the level of uh, the, the three guys I've mentioned, Cooper, and uh, uh, Gary McAllister and, of course, Kenny Dalglish. For for Alec Ferguson to miss Kenny. Now, had, had Kenny gone, I'm certain uh, we would have got to the group, past the group stage, into the knockout stage. And, of course, that's what we're trying to do in this tournament. How... How difficult is it going to be for the players, Craig, to go to go to Wembley 
and play England, obviously it's a fixture that comes with a lot of baggage outside just being a football match at the Euros. There's obviously a, ve- a very historical rivalry there. You're, you're a manager that's taken Scotland to Wembley and won. Um, there was also the game in Euro 96 as well, which I'm sure everyone remembers, bar me, because I would have been four. But um, not to go on and on about that, but how 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 difficult is that and how yeah. hard is it to keep... To keep the, I suppose, the media noise out. I know we've talked a little bit about that already, and also, you know, just keep that sort of keep the players' own Scottish pride, you know, down to the point where they can be in control themselves and ensure they play well. Well, the one thing you don't have to do is motivate them. <laughs> that's that goes without saying. When you're going to Wembley, you know, I, I found going to Wembley, you know, when I was there with Andy Rocks, I was there in the Roush Cup days, you know, as the assistant manager. And in fact, I was there when a player, and I think this is worth recalling, uh, the importance of playing England at Wembley was exemplified to me by the late Tommy Burns. We're playing England at Wembley, and Andy says to me, get Tommy warmed up, Craig. So I says, Tom, warmed up. And he and he said, am I going on? I says, we're thinking about it. You never say yes, because you might change your mind. <laughs> you know. So you say, we're thinking about it, so be ready. So away he goes now. There's never been a more conscientious guy played the game of football. So Tommy's warming up and Andy says, get him on. Now, I'm trying to remember who, who we took off him. Paul will be too happy if I th- suggest it. might have been Neil Simpson. <laughs> That's from memory. Neither will Simi if, if I'm wrong. But anyway, we're making a change and we're, we're one down and we want uh, a more offensive midfield player. So I said to Tommy, warm up. And he says, am I going on? And eventually, I called him over and I says, Tom, the manager says, you're going on. Oh, brilliant. And he, he got his kit off and he's ready. And he walked around behind this bench we were on and he put his two hands on Andy Roxford's shoulder. Now, Andy's watching the game and he stood in front of him, blocking the game. And he looked right into Andy's face and I'll never forget what he said, Andy. He says, I just want to thank you. I can't believe it. A lifetime's ambition to play for Scotland against England at Wembley. Thank you. Thank you. That was Tommy. He turned and on he went. Now, he played well, but we didn't manage to get the goal back. But but that wee speech from Tommy Burns, just a short word in Andy's face, actually, thanking him for putting him on, it told me the feeling that players have when they're playing against or conscientious players have to play against England at Wembley. Lifetime's ambition, said Tommy. And and he was emotional. I, mean, I was sitting next to Andy. I was nearly in tears myself listening to him. Uh, and on he went with the great enthusiasm. So to play England is a, a dream, I think, for many players. Uh, just as, you know, you heard last night, the, the, these lads that played against Brazil, it was a dream to play against the world champions in the opening game of the World Cup with so many million watching. But... It's the same playing England at Wembley. And the one thing I've never felt a Scottish team to be afraid of that fixture, you know, they go with enthusiasm. And I think deep down the feeling is we're not expected to win here. And that's when Scotland are at their most vulnerable. When, when we're playing a smaller nation at home and you're expected to win. And then the pressure's on. But there's no pressure... Uh, when you're playing away against England, there's only great determination and enthusiasm to please the Tartan Army and get a result. So uh, I'm I, I'm really optimistic about 
no matter if you looked at the England team and you looked at our team and you put a valuation in each player in each position, the valuations would be massively in advance of uh, the Scottish players, uh, the England team. So on that account only, they should be strong favourites, and the home, the home venue, should make them further favourites. But all we need to do, I think, is win one game and we'll qualify out the out the group. Okay, so Paul wrote this question, so I'll ask it, but just don't think less of me for asking it. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're on the eve of the tournament, who are Scotland going to beat in the European Championship final? Oh, that's I would like I would like to get uh, maybe one of the fancied nations like Germany or Italy and beat them in the final. I think we, we, we've proved that if Netherlands got the final, we wouldn't have any fear. Uh, we could play them with assurance. But uh, it would be very good to... I, I, I always think, I always respect German football and Italian football. And what I like about the Italian team, I've never known an Italian team, certainly maybe at club level, but even when I was watching... Uh, I used to work on that Channel 5 programme with Harry Redknapp and watched the Italian game on a Sunday in the studio in London and we were giving our opinions and I watched Italian league football and sometimes they would send us over there and I would go over either with Harry or with Joe Jordan and, and I was privileged, it was a great privilege, I was a Scotland manager at the time and I did this uh, Italian channel stuff and we would go over to watch the Milan derby, if it was a derby like that or the Rome derby, you know, we would go to to see Lazio play in Roma, or we would go to the Genoa derby, Genoa against Sampdoria, or we'd go to Inter against AC Milan. And these were terrific events. But what I've noticed is that the the Italian football, how can I put it, maybe I'm totally wrong here, but my experience is that the respect they have for each other and for the manager, is immense. And they're very supportive. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, if I'm not boring you, stop me if I'm, I'm going on off the subject here. But No, are you fine, no. on? We were no, discussing no, no, this no. before you came on. So, yeah, <laughs> please continue. Well, I know what no, you're going well, to I'm, say here. You're, you're going to say it about the, 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 the Italian opening game in, in the European Championship in Belgium, Holland. Uh, was in Brussels and the opening game was the host country Belgium against Italy and I was working for the BBC and the, and, the, and I looked at the Gazzetta della Sport the pink paper and I can't read one word of Italian but I'm looking I wanted their team the Italian team and I saw the headline was Totti will replace Del Piero and well it was pretty obvious that there was a photo of Totti with a thumb up and Del Piero down and I thought, this is a big shock for everyone. This was Totti getting his first game for Italy, and it was the opening game of the European Championship. Now, I'm sitting in the press box, which was just behind the, the dugouts, behind the technical area, and in uh, probably about 10 minutes or so, played a watch, and Totti scores the, a great goal for uh, Italy. And I looked at the dugout down below me, and the first guy out, ran out, jumped, punched the air, jumping with joy, 
Del Piero. Now, this is the guy that's been dropped, the superstar. And I looked at that and I said, well, that is fantastic. That's togetherness of a team where you've got a guy with the experience of him uh, seeing a young fella coming on who plays his position and he scores a goal and he's not sitting there saying, oh, no, I'll never get my place back. He just went out there spontaneously and punched the air with great joy, bouncing about because Italy had taken the lead. And I've told that story to various teams. I says, look, we want, if you're not on the bench, now Steve has a problem here with the, with the numbers because he's got 15 players on the bench and only 11 on the pitch. Now, that's a management problem. If you, if you look at it that way, uh, if you want a problem, you've got one. But if, you, if the lads know the attitude expected of the substitutes and no sulking is permitted, they know what you expect and they know how to perform and how to behave. And, and I used to say, when you warm up, I say to the physio, take his pulse count, make sure it's three quarters of his maximum or he doesn't get on. Now, we things like that. And I think the attitude of substitutes tells you a lot about a team. Now, I have never seen an Italian national team with substitutes which are other than really enthusiastic. And as they warm up, they warm up. And, and I've never seen sulking, and that's at club level or international level. And maybe I've got, got it in my mind and I'm expecting it, but it's very, very noticeable. And that's the attitude that you want in a Scottish team. And I'm sure Steve's got it. I, I tried to get it, and I, I, I would tell them that story. I'd say, look, if, if it's good enough for Del Piero to support his replacement is good enough for any of you guys and if you want to be a sulking substitute don't bother coming just stay at home <laughs> and and uh, I left one or two at home because they were like that but, but that's never been publicised I'm going on and on sorry but I hope you understand that you know when you're watching a game as, uh, as I do I'm not just watching what's happening on the pitch I'm watching what's happening on the bench because that was my job and I'm interested to see what's happening and how they're responding. That probably brings us to a fitting way to come close to, to wrapping this up, Craig, because obviously you've, the last time we were at a, a major finals, you watched the game from the dugout. Where, where's uh, Craig Brown going to be watching our, our opener on Monday? He's going to, I, I, I managed to get an invitation to the game now. Uh, I've got to thank... Uh, <laughs> of course you did. No, of course no, that's not... Uh, somebody spoke for me, somebody you know, and said, uh, I'm going to the game, uh, uh, is Craig Brown going? And I don't think it had been, th may, I may be very wrong, I don't think it had been thought of. And I, I can understand that because there have been so many managers since we were last in the European Championship. Now, I don't think you can give every manager uh, a ticket or a couple of tickets, uh, but uh, as a result of somebody speaking saying that now I, I have never asked but I managed to be offered a ticket for the game and I'm very much looking forward to the two Hamden games I'm not going to the Wembley game I've not got one for that but I've got the two I got a ticket for each of the Hamden fixtures and I'm grateful to the SFA if it is the SFA I don't know whether it was the F or the SFA who authorised it but uh, I'm not going to embarrass anyone by telling you who it was, but someone asked. Now, I did not ask, and I would never ask for a ticket, because I, I used to say to players, 
they're all out and, and players, pals and friends think they get free tickets unlimited. <laughs> and I said, look, somebody's to pay to get into this game. And I always tell the famous Brian Clough story when he signed the boy uh, Mackenzie for Nottingham Forest, I think it was from, uh, where was Mackenzie playing at Everton, but he signed him anyway. And uh, the day before the game, Cloughy says to him, everything all right, son? Are you happy? He says, anything we can do? He says, yeah, there's one thing, boss. He says, could I get a couple of tickets? And Cloughy said to him, to Mackenzie, he says, who are they for? He said, my father and my mother. He says, listen, son, if your father and mother won't pay to see you pay, who else will? He says, you can, they can buy a ticket each. So I always think of that story with Brian Clough, who was quite ruthless. And uh, the new signing, the highest priced player in England at the time, had to, uh, Duncan McKenzie, had to buy two tickets to get his father and mother into the game. <laughs> But the, 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 actually, the price of Category 1 tickets is quite interesting to you, for you, I think, because the Category 1 at Hamden eh, amazed me, the, the price of them. But when you think about it more carefully, maybe it shouldn't have been that £161 for the ticket. <laughs> well, where did, the where did the £1 come from? I think that's a translation from the <laughs> Euros. You know, the... the, the the conversion of the money, the euro into pounds, because it may be that, what would that be, 180 pounds or 170 or something? To, to get the 161, that's category one prices, I know that for a fact. So, I mean, that's quite expensive uh, if you're going to the match. But there's only a, a limited number, how many are there, 12,000? Uh, so maybe you added up the price of all the tickets from the tournaments we've missed. Can I ask you one final question, Craig? Certainly. Okay. So you you've talked, obviously, you went to nineteen eighty six with Sir Alex. You obviously yes. managed the national team all the way up to two thousand and one. If you had to pick, say, three players who were your the the best Scotland players to your mind, that played under you, who, who who would you say from that period, that, what, 25-year period, 20-year period? Yeah, well, are you, are you, are, am I allowed to talk, when I, say, when I was the assistant, or is it just when I was the manager? Yeah, no, you can say when you were the assistant as well. Oh, well, look at that team that, uh, that Sir Alec took to <laughs> over to Mexico. Now, we were desperately unlucky, there's no doubt about that. And incidentally, while we're talking about Sir Alec, I never once heard them raise his voice, not once. And and that was he had ten games in charge of Scotland when the late Jockstein passed away, and everything Alec said to the team was in conversational manner. He would the way I'm talking to you just now is the way he would talk to the team. I would never hear him shouting or roaring or anything. He was firm, and they listened, but he never raised his voice once. And I thought, well, you don't need to raise your voice to be as successful. Now, Archie Knox tells me occasionally, very, very, you know, the famous hairdryer, that was a one-off in all the years he was at Manchester United. But and I, th I tried to learn from watching and sitting beside him. And, you know, he's a pal, of course, uh, because we played together in the Scottish uh, youth team and we were always friendly. And 
you know, it's easy to, you know, when you're picking uh, colleagues, you want people you're socially friend with as well as good exponents. Now, so so, so Sir Alec had a wonderful array of talent. Now, I was not the manager. I was just on the staff. But if you're asking me, I mean, I definitely was in the dressing room when Kenny Delgleish was still playing. In fact, Andy was the manager. Kenny was playing. Now, Kenny, in my opinion, is the best player ever in Scotland. Now, Sir Alec disagrees with me. He says Dennis Law was the best player. And he's he's adamant that Law was Scotland's best ever player. And, and I'm not in any way going to dispute what Sir Alec Ferguson says. But I, I didn't. I was never privileged to be in the dressing room with Dennis. He'd finished by the time Andy started, or even Alec started. Alec at the job. So, I mean, when you're going through all the players in that dressing room that I think went to Mexico, I think there was hardly a better uh, group of players. There was Graham Souness in the, in the group. There was Gordon Strachan, wonderful player. There was Steve Archibald, a wonderful player, who was the leading scorer in Scotland, in England and in Spain. Now, that takes some doing. I mean, we haven't got a player with that... Uh, how can I put it with these statistics in the squad just now a player who has been the leading scorer he was at Aberdeen he was leading scorer at Tottenham was leading scorer and at Barcelona now that's some CV to have uh, Steve Archibald now these guys and you know when you go right through the team Willie Miller unbelievable McLeish unbelievable so that team far better than I think in man for man than teams I had so if you're asking me, what are you asking me for the the one player, the best player? I said three, but I think I think you, I think you've named enough. I've given thirty. I've given the thirty-three. <laughs> in each era, I, I think Douglas was the best player in that, that. That that was in the dressing room with without doubt. You know, in Andy's time, he was still playing. He was getting his hundred and second cap with Andy, and very very unassuming, very unassuming. You know, if he if he criticised anything, he did. As I had occasion to do nicely, uh, I, well, uh, firmly I said to him, Kenny, this opponent, this boy playing in your position is running the game. I think I don't know who were playing Bulgaria or something. I says, and, uh, and you know, he said, sorry, sorry. I said, well, don't be sorry at the end of the game, you know. And when when I, at the end of the game I complimented him, I says, that's better. That's what we're looking for. He said two words, thank you. Now the humility of Kenny was, you know, is quite remarkable. People get the impression because they're big stars, they're, they're arrogant and they're conceited. And but many of them are really unassuming. And I think the the bigger the star, the easier he is to deal with. So you know you can go through that, that team that went to Mexico, and then of course Andy's Andy's group. They were that was the McKees Miller Strachan group, uh, who were fantastic. McCoyst, and I was privileged to have McCoyst as well. Uh, Morris Johnson up up front and McAllister and Collins I mean I could go on and on and on <laughs> as you hear okay well that is a thank you thank okay. you thanks for that I enjoyed talking to you folks yeah and thank you very no, much thank Craig, you, Craig. for joining us um, that concludes this week's episode of Northern Goal if you've enjoyed that episode and how could you not have um, you can subscribe and like on your favourite podcast app whichever one you use you can email us at northerngoal at dctmedia.co.uk and finally and it is finally because it's just around the corner 
Enjoy Scotland's first game at the Euros on Monday. Hope you loved the episode, and if you did, we'd be grateful if you could leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your copies of the Press and Journal and Evening Express every day for the best football writing and analysis in the North.